Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Chris Courtney, who's Assistant Professor of Modern Chinese History at Durham University, and he'll be talking about his book, The Nature of Disaster in China, the 1931 Yangtze River Flood, which was published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press has a new paperback out this year in 2020 and won the American Historical Association's Fairbank Prize in 2019. Not many weeks ago, few people outside China knew where the city of Wuhan was, and still fewer would have known quite how central it's been to so many pivotal events in the country's recent history. Wuhan's tumultuous 20th century saw it feature almost 90 years ago as the epicentre of a major flood, which, while being quite different from uh, our pandemic today as a disaster, was at least as momentous for the population of this city and many other places across China and indeed the world. As a result, Chris Courtney's rich study of the flood and the millions affected provides compelling reading during our own period of cataclysmic Wuhan-originating events. Adopting an innovative multi-perspectival approach, Courtney looks at the flood and the events which surrounded it from numerous different angles, environmental, social, cultural and institutional to name a few. These different perspectives on a phenomenon of such a vast scale are revelatory in their own right, but this is also a book about much more than just a flood. The reach of the disaster and the time it happened meant that it brought together a vast range of crucial people and events which together shed light on Chinese and global affairs at a fascinating and important juncture of history. Almost equidistant between the collapse of the Qing Empire, also an event which owes a lot to Wuhan, and the foundation of the People's Republic of China, events along the Yangtze in 1931 bring into focus a society undergoing radical change of a kind whose effects endure to the present day. But here in the present day, the author is here to say more. So I'll say, Chris Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Great intro. (laughs) Thank you very much uh, to you as well. Uh, But uh, before we talk about the book, which I have uh, introed there, uh, perhaps I could begin by asking you uh, something of your background uh, and and how you became interested in this subject and uh, all, all other matters pertaining to Wuhan and China. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess the story of the book really begins uh, with my interest in Wuhan, which developed because I moved there in around 2004 uh, on a whim, really. I didn't know anything about China or or Chinese culture or history at the time. I moved there. I got a job as an English teacher. And then eight days later, I was basically standing in the city and I'm in the city kind of just absorbing everything I saw without necessarily too many preconceptions, which I think was actually probably quite a good way of going about it in retrospect, although it mm. seemed a little bit uh, chaotic at the time. So I <laughs> I um, spent a few years working as an English teacher off and on in Wuhan and traveling around quite a lot of China. And then I returned to the University of Manchester where I did my, um, my postgraduate training. 
actually in social anthropology, not in in history. Um, and I mean, I still kind of draw upon quite a lot of my social anthropology uh, kind of theoretical background, although I don't necessarily wear it on my sleeve always. Um, mm. But the great benefit of uh, doing a social anthropology PhD is you can spend huge amounts of time actually in the field. So I spent about a year at Wuhan University studying Chinese to start with. And then during the actual PhD, 15 months doing kind of deep immersive field work, during which time I got married and my wife had a baby, that sort of stuff. Um, right, wow. And thankfully, I had um, at the University of Manchester, a very uh, supportive advisor, Sharon McDonald, who was kind of uh, content to allow me to sort of vaguely wander nomadically through various academic disciplines and eventually kind of settle on history. And I came back from Wuhan with uh, kind of the bare bones of, I guess, what it turned into this book, wrote my PhD thesis on that, and then was lucky enough to get two postdoctoral positions. So firstly, I got a research fellowship at the um, Gonville and Keys College in the University of Cambridge, where I spent a wonderful couple of years. Um, people may, people on this channel may know um, Keys as the Joseph Needham's College. So I spent quite a lot of nice time talking to some of Joseph Needham's old friends over copious amounts mm. of wine. And then um, I kind of, I, I left that fellowship and went to a fellowship at the Asia Research Institute in the National University of Singapore, which initially the institute was being run by Prasenjit Dwara. So of course he was a, a great mentor and person to talk to about Chinese history. But also mm. at the Asia Research Institute, I was in this disaster studies unit with sociologists, geographers, urban planners, I really spent two years just thinking about how to understand disasters from a particular perspective. Then mm-hmm. finally moved mm-hmm. back from Singapore and uh, after a brief stay at University of Southampton, got my current job at the University of Durham. Right. Oh, well, that's uh, that's great to have a, a bit of context for understanding the span of um, uh, yeah disciplinary interests and, and thematic concerns which the book covers. Um, I mean, just in terms of the practicality and some of these questions over disciplinary uh, boundaries and the like uh writing a book that's so yeah uh, or writing a, a dissertation as I, uh, I should say that then led to the book that with such a historical inflection i mean this was something that was still broadly acceptable as uh, a social anthropology phd thesis or, or was the anthropology thesis a bit less historically oriented could you just say something about that i, I guess at the at the thesis level there was there was more of an explicit link to some of the anthropological theory in there um so mm. a lot of the stuff that kind of eventually in the book became historiographical was anthropological in the thesis so a lot of my interest for example in sensory history or it, it, like the history of the emotions was uh, initially kind of inspired by reading things about the effective turn in anthropology and these types of things. But, you mm-hmm. know, they, they were very flexible and very nice to me. As I said, I had a experienced and uh, a very um, understanding supervisor who kind of let me uh, get away with this. And, and eventually the thesis was also examined by historians. Right, right. Well, uh, that does, yeah, that does explain something of, of why it's able to uh, cross such a such a wide range and really sort of omnivorously browse its way over yeah i think many different um fascinating fields that listeners and and uh, hopefully readers too will uh, be able to get their teeth into um but um we'll jump then into the book having sure. kind of got a sense of where it came from um you uh talk about you know turning up in wuhan there just kind of 
uh, without too many preconceptions or indeed uh, pre-existing knowledge of, of China and, and uh, least of all, I guess, of, of uh, you know, I think it is fair to say, not particularly uh, famous outside China city. Um, and this book actually is uh, one of its kind of strengths is, is the great presentation it gives of uh, Wuhan as a place uh, at this period in time. So could you just give us kind of more of a sense of what the city of Wuhan is like um, and, and kind of uh, how it came to be as a city and so on? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, before January this year, it wasn't a city that was particularly well known outside of China and now unfortunately is for the most tragic reasons. Uh, So I'm going to have to kind of change my spiel when I introduce myself to people, I guess, in the future. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's kind of some urban forms have been there for thousands of years. It's a city that's built on this kind of confluence of the Han and the Yangtze River. So it's a really kind of um, fortuitous position within the kind of river system. It was It's known kind of as the, the gateway to nine provinces because you can get to all of the different provinces just by following rivers from the particular city. Actually, I, I say the city, for most of its history, Wuhan has been three cities, um, or, or two or three, Hanyang, Hankou, and, and Wuchang. Um, so they developed and were as... Anybody who's interested in the city can read in William Rowe's, I think, still peerless urban history of Hankou in the in the late imperial period. They were some of the largest and most internally cosmopolitan cities in the world. I say internal cosmopolitan because, I mean, we don't have evidence of huge amounts of people from outside the Ming and Qing empires going there. But in terms of kind of regional cosmopolitanism, they had huge, huge kind of variation. And then in the 19th century, they, this becomes supplemented by kind of international cosmopolitanism when Hankou, this section of the city, gets opened up as a treaty port. And eventually by the 1890s, it has a French, British, German, Russian and Japanese concession. And so by the early 20th century, uh, many of the things that people associate with the kind of interesting aspects of international Shanghai life existed also in, in Wuhan, in, in particularly in Hankou, albeit on a much smaller scale, down to the fact that mm-hmm. many of the people who were su- supposedly British or count on in kind of documents as British were actually Indian. There's a large Indian population. There's populations from Southeast Asia. Um, so it's an incredibly interesting and hust- like bustling city, one of the largest and most in- economically important cities in China, a political centre, but also because it's on these rivers that I mentioned before, uh, it's also massively prone to flooding and throughout its history has suffered from this kind of perennial problem with floods. Mm, right. And right up to the present, in fact, right? Because I mean, that even quite recent uh, years have seen uh, n- news stories about pretty, you know, cat- catastrophic levels. I mean, nothing on the scale of what this book describes, but very, very high water levels right in the heart of the city itself. Um, but as someone who spent so much time there uh, in, in kind of relatively recent times um, and, and, and indeed yeah, has such a, an attachment to the place, I mean, uh, is it possible today still to feel the sense that, uh, as you mentioned, this was three different cities that have grown together? I mean, uh, are, there, are there quite different um, aspects and, and atmospheres to different parts of the city uh, you know, such a huge place. Um, what, what's it like today? Well, I mean, it's um, 
the sense of the distinction between the cities uh, i know you mentioned you used to live in wuhan probably uh, like a, a decade ago probably even if you went back now you'd see it much less and the critical difference really there were two major differences um they've built a subway so you can now sit i mean you used to have to they built the kind of first big bridges in the 1950s um you used to have to at least see the river now you can just zip underneath the underneath the river you don't even tell that you've come into contact with this uh, vast uh, body of water uh, and also just the amount of the city now that's being replaced by kind of identical high-rise buildings which has been going on for a long time but over the last five years or so it's really ramped up uh, so now I think a lot of the interesting distinctions that used to be between the, the cities when I first moved there are, are sadly being lost. Mm-hmm. Oh well like I guess uh, then you know books which reflect something of the, the history of, of, of the uh, diversity and, and the distinctions will, will be all the more valuable as a result. Um, but what, what uh, was it then that made the 1931 flood uh, something that you were interested in focusing on? And what, what is it that makes it such a kind of compelling subject of study? Um, could you give us some sort of sense of, of what this flood was in terms of scale? Hard though it is, of course, for many people who've not been in one to understand, but how many people were affected and what kind of area did it cover and the like? Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, firstly, it's important to point out uh, that the flood's not just affecting Wuhan. The flood is nationwide um, in a, a very divided nation at the time, as it was. Um, so it, it stretched all the way from Heilongjiang in the north. There was some flooding down to Guangdong in the south, from Jiangsu to Sichuan. Kind of major floods in most of the major river systems in China at that period. The two, the two kind of ones that are remembered the Yanzi River and the Huai River now. It's called the Jianghuai Shuizai in, um, in Chinese today. Um, but it, it wasn't just limited to those two rivers. It was a massive event. It flooded an area roughly the size of England and Scotland. Uh, and this is in one of the most densely populated regions in the world. So it affects huge amounts of people. But it's not really its geographic scale that makes it um, so exceptional. It's, it's the fact that um, because I mean, like there, as you mentioned before, there have been other floods. So the 1954 Yanzi River flood and the 1998 Yanzi River flood, in terms of the actual areas flooded, arguably may have flooded more, particularly within the Yanzi uh, Basin. It's it's the humanitarian impact that really makes this uh, so exceptional. So est- all estimates are very crude, but people say maybe 50 to 60 million people were affected by this flood, of whom. Yeah. I think it's credible to say upwards of 2 million people died. Now, I, I say it's credible to say upwards of and deliberately couch that in imprecise language because we don't actually have any clear idea about how many people died between 1931 and 1932. Um, we only know it was a staggering number of people. In fact, most disasters in history, we don't really have an accurate figure for how many people died. Um, and this is no exception. But mm. quantifying the number of people who died has never been particularly interesting for me. I'm not really interested in kind of depicting this as the kind of superlative flood in, in history. Um, and I think the kind of numbers games that some historians can get into about disasters can often be a distraction and not particularly very interested interesting. So what I'm really critically trying to do with this book is instead to think about why so many people died, not necessarily pin a number on the number of people who died. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, is it because of the, uh, I guess, inherent imprecision of numbers or because of the prevalence of other better known floods and so on that it hasn't got as much attention? I mean, this particular event, what's, what is it that sort of left it relatively unexplored by uh, scholars in the past? Well, I guess the kind of closest comparable event would be the 1938 Yellow River floods, right, where the, the Kuomintang deliberately breached the dikes and flooded huge amounts of of territory, as, as has been explored by a few authors, uh, most recently in his excellent book, Michael Muscolino talked a lot about that that particular flood. Um, uh, Kate Eshen Tarpley's also done some research into that. Critically, there though, it's it's a fairly simple story. You can say they opened the dikes, it caused the flood. So there's a kind of a, a simple narrative. Whereas what's happening in the 1931 flood, determining how why so many people died, isn't a simple question of thinking of that moment when the disaster began you have to think about it kind of in a slightly more more complex way so it's not so clear cut in terms of causality and also just generally sorry and also just generally uh, i'm not saying this flood was exceptional there i mean there's huge drought famines in china in the end of the 1920s which killed millions more than this and barely anything's been written about them as well Mm, mm. well and i guess i mean as you say the the kind of Difficulty in teasing out cause and effect, and and the uh, yeah the details of what exactly did transpire. Uh, I mean, this is the this is the task that you approach. I would say with such uh, a plum in the book itself, um, and you kind of spend a lot of it, I guess, um, really uh, deftly balancing a focus on the social dimensions, the the kind of extent to which uh, you know disasters are um, anthropogenic or have a you know effect that is magnified by the, the just the, the very presence or the behavior of, of human beings and also then the uh, natural or environmental forces which uh, you know many look to in uh, in talking about these uh, many humans look to in talking about these disastrous events um you basically frame this interplay i guess between these and other forces as uh, what you call a disaster regime um so could you kind of explain how that helps you to understand the yeah the, the inherent complexities in this quite difficult to approach event sure so what i'm really trying to do i mean you can boil it down in this book is to apply some of the insights that i've got from disaster studies to history and in and apply some historical insights that i've got to disaster studies and these two things kind of coalesce within this idea of the disaster regime that i i try to develop during this book so probably one of the simplest yet most important contributions that disaster studies has made is to essentially um, get rid of the idea that there can be such a thing as a natural disaster. And I'm totally on board with that. Um, I don't think the language of natural disaster should, should ever be used. Mm. However, um, there's a risk when you push it too far in this way, and some people do it for effect, that you essentially remove any of the agency of nature. So essentially what you're doing and what you risk doing when you're writing a disaster history is saying, look at this terrible thing that you all thought was caused by nature. Well, actually, it was caused by human beings, uh, which I think is just a very reductive position. It's a, basically a social determinist position that is no less reductive than the environmentally determinist position of saying something is a natural disaster. So I tried to develop this disaster regime, and it's kind of inspired both by the idea of a political regime or the flood regime, which is something that ecologists talk about, um, 
as kind of a kind of more holistic model for thinking about all of the different elements that are continuously in interaction between the anthropogenic and environmental causality uh, that help to conspire to cause the events that human beings experience as disasters. So it's a kind of an ingredients list for all the factors that you need to take into consideration when you're thinking about disasters. Mm. And just to add one more thing, the, the other kind of element in the disaster regime is if when you think about it kind of an analog for the for a political regime, political regimes change continuously and are contingent on their historical era. So the other point I'm trying to make with the disaster regime is so do disasters. They're not something that step that occur outside of history. They are all very much rooted in their particular historical epoch. So the same things that were making the 1931 flood so disastrous were that were also occurring in other regions in China and various parts of the world during that particular period. Right, right. And and yeah, and it's a, a kind of strength of the book too that it evokes such a particular historical and, and uh, social setting, um, which, yeah, doesn't sort of uh, drag us towards the, the grander abstractions of uh, disasters as either man-made or... or um, or purely natural, whatever that might mean. Um, and even through uh, five or six, rather, sort of chapters that uh, very kind of um, nicely balance these these different concerns, you're kind of constantly uh, bringing both into play. Um, so in chapter one, uh, you kind of uh, adopt what you call an, an environmental uh, historical approach um, and cover something of the, the sort of history of settlement of the region and some of the, I guess, deeper uh, temporal span of, of what people have been doing uh, in this part of China and, 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 and the world um, over the centuries. So um, what what is the sort of yeah history of, of human interaction with the Yangtze in particular, but also with kind of broader bodies of water around uh, Hubei province uh, and this area? Right. So, um, yeah, so I'm it's changed continuously over time as the disaster regime has changed. But as you as you said in this first chapter, I'm kind of trying to chase it, trace it back all the way to kind of the beginning, really, of of the human settlement of this of this region. When this the middle and lower Yanzhou Valley looked very different from the way it did today. The zoologist Samuel Turvey has described this as the Amazon of the East. Um, it's a hugely biodiverse area covered with lakes, rivers, and wetlands, this kind of wetland system expanding all the way from the coast up to, uh, to Hubei province. And this biodiversity is a product of flooding, right? It's a, a product of, of this annual flood pulse, which makes this an in, incredibly um, ecologically diverse area. And this is one of the reasons that people settle it. So because there's this huge biodiversity, it's relatively abundant in the kinds of things that that you would want to find if you were a hunter-gatherer and uh so right from the very beginning people have settled this region not because not in spite of flooding but because of it and then they eventually develop this system of wet rice agriculture which comes to sort of dominate the economy and this too is a product of flooding right so what you're doing by by making a kind of wet rice system is you're imitating the natural effects of a wetland uh, only you're doing it in a more regulated fashion in order to be able to reap the benefits of this kind of semi-anthropogenic flood pulse. Mm-hmm. And then over time, uh, what de- developed in the region is the kind of the subject of more kind of familiar history, the kind of hydrological history of, sorry, hydraulic history of China, uh, which has been studied by many people, 
for example, Pierre Tianwil, Peter Perdue, more recently, people like Zhang Jiayan and Yang Gao have looked at this kind of long-term development of the kind of dike networks and sluice gates and all these sorts of hydraulic structures. So my contribution to the way they're talking about that is really to think about how these structures enter the the kind of the system of flooding and turn something like a hydrological system to turn flooding, which is a kind of natural feature of the hydrological system, into something that can become this kind of big aberrant flood. So the kind of flood you have when a dike collapses is very different to the type of flood you would have in a landscape without dikes. So mm. from this point, there is always a kind of an anthropogenic element within uh, within the kind of disaster regime. And also, of course, dikes depend on politics, economics. So these factors also become kind of important in how we understand this. And is this why? I mean, is the is the kind of political regulation, and I suppose, yeah, the 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 presence of water management. I mean, there is obviously uh, some influential work to perhaps stuff that uh, may may longer no no longer hold much water, if you'll forgive the pun <laughs> these days. But ideas about the importance of water management to China's entire. Um, a political system, perhaps looking to Victor Orgel and others, but um, in terms of the foundation of 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 the of the the dry city, if you like, or of of uh, Wuchang, Hankou, and Hanyang at different times, was this something that was primarily predicated on uh, regulation and management of this sort of paddy uh, region? Uh, you mean you mean in terms of the city itself, or in terms of the region more generally? Yeah, the actual city. I mean, are the, are the origins of the city kind of as an urban cluster primarily something that that, that came about because of a need to regulate dikes and and manage a, a, an increasingly complex sort of agricultural society? Well, I don't want to sound evasive, but I mean, it sound it depends which dikes you're talking about because there are different management structures that depend on different dikes, right? So there's ones that are managed by local populations, and then there's the larger dikes that are managed kind of more centrally. I would mm-hmm. say that. The this, this city certainly, as I mentioned before, owes owes its much of its uh, kind of growth to the fact that this is a kind of water abundant landscape in terms of transportation, the other kind of major uh, kind of use that people have of water. But mm. another important thing about thinking about Wuhan and the, the region more generally is that you mentioned just their dry city. Of course, Wuhan was a dry city, but it also had huge amounts that weren't so much of the city actually existed floating in the harbors um and it's and it was a very seasonal city as well the rivers would rise and fall with the annual flood pulse mm. so huge mm. numbers of the people who lived in the city lived there uh seasonally and some of them would live on boats some of them would live in all these kind of sampans that existed and the same is true in the countryside so we we tend to think about uh the the residents of this province as rice farmers, but they were also fisher folk. They were also people who gathered and cultivated wetland crops. And all this kind of system that I um, describe, which is to a certain extent exists in greater cooperation with the kind of wetland environment, is is what I describe as wetland cultures that have existed since ancient times and, of course, declined as the wetlands retreated uh, under human activity, but still existed at the time of the 1931 flood, albeit in a very like, kind of uh, small amounts in comparison to the past. Right, right. And and I guess, I mean, a lot of that uh, changed with the arrival of the colonial powers that you that you mentioned and some of the urban transformation that occurred as a result of uh, the, the, the um, 
assignment of the treaty port status to to Wuhan, and we'll perhaps touch on that um, a bit later on. But um, you just painted quite a yeah quite a, an evocative picture there of a of a sort of uh, ecology, if you like, of a, uh, a kind of I mean symbiosis feels like a lazy and uh, ina- inadequate word uh, and, and probably just inappropriate. But uh, in any case, humans living amid at the very least, large amounts of water and often on and and, and reliant on for many reasons. Um, and chapter two indeed deals with um, the ecology of the region. And you've brought up this kind of flood pulse idea a few times. So how, how to understand this place and the relationships that are here between uh, humans and water and, and, and other beings in the ecology um, it, it, as opposed to the environment? I mean, what's the, what's the distinction here between um, as you put it yourself, environmental and ecological history of a place like this? Well, of course, e- ecological history is really just a subset of environmental history. And I distinguish the two really largely just so I can have like two different themes of <laughs> two different chapters. Uh, I guess it, you could say the first chapter is more kind of traditional environmental history and the ecological chapter is dealing uh, with kind of more recent trends. I mentioned Michael Muscolino's book. He, he wrote this Ecology of War book and there's been Ecological history has been kind of on the ascendant within environmental history recently. But the way I'm uh, the way I'm using it in in this particular book is to distinguish between a kind of long term effect of the kind of interaction between humans and the wetland environment. And in this chapter, I'm talking specifically about the 1931 flood pulse. So specifically about what happened when the valley was inundated during the course of one year. Um, and Kind of central to my argument is this kind of attempt to complicate some of the his previous histories that have been written about Chinese famines and disasters, which I argue have too much attention on kind of the nutritional effects of disasters. Of course, nutrition is vitally important to the way that we understand any kind of event such as this, but actually it's only one of the drivers of mortality. Um, Historians largely write about it because that's what concerned people at the time. And people, the the records are full of kind of the destruction of systems of uh, nutrition. But that doesn't necessarily affect, doesn't necessarily represent the true dynamics of what's going on during a disaster. And if you look at, if you take a kind of ecological rather than a strictly economic uh, approach to a flood, what's happening during a flood isn't just the destruction of huge amounts of plants and uh, domestic animals and these types of things. That's very important. But what's also happening is this huge generative effect of the flood pulse. So actually what was affecting people in 1931, and one of the major drivers of mortality wasn't the destruction that was caused by the flood. It was the very fact that the flood pulse was so ecologically productive. It It was creating things, for example, like huge populations of mosquitoes, huge populations of flies, huge populations of schistosomiasis carrying um, uh, freshwater snails and all of these types of things. And these were the types of things, if you actually look at the mortality statistics, that were really uh, driving mortality. Of course, the lack of nutrition made ensured that people were more uh, susceptible to these types of infection and also pushed them into greater congregations so that they could uh, become susceptible to being infected by these diseases. But thinking about this as just a a famine caused by a flood is a very limited way of understanding it. Uh, and also thinking the kind of the logical corollary of that is that if you can't just think about this as a famine 
caused by a lack of food. You also can't think about the kind of uh, response of the state of providing food as necessarily doing a great job in assuaging the disaster, which is a point I make later on in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, absolutely. We'll get on to that as we look at sort of some of the, uh, I guess, um, yeah, uh, ham-fisted and uh, perhaps in a, and well, certainly inadequate uh, responses from from officialdom to what went on uh, in 1931 and indeed beyond. Um, but uh, you speak then of yeah of uh, a, a population living um, on water and and with water and indeed sharing this space with, uh, as you point out, from this sort of ecological perspective, a great variety of other beings of. of of non-human uh, actors in the landscape and, and indeed in the actual water and um, uh, the long-term experiences of the population with uh, cholera and snail fever and um, other kind of uh, waterborne maladies um, are, is, is obviously a, a particularly, um, uh, well, unpleasant part of that kind of waterborne experience. Um, but uh, moving on to kind of what kind of a culture, uh, I guess, um, develops in a very watery environment like this um in chapter three you kind of adopt a sort of more cultural historical approach um by focusing in and and i think really often quite entertainingly it must be said on one particular local deity the dragon king the long one um so who who was the dragon king uh what was his presence in uh wuhan and, and what does this tell us about um sort of people's yeah, interaction with uh, this uh this watery world that surrounded them Sure. Yeah. So, um, I, the the story of Longwang Miao, or the kind of Dragon King Temple, um, is probably one of the ones that kind of drew me first into studying the 1931 flood. Um, so there's this this story that emerges uh, that in in 1930, this new kind of Kuomintang affiliated regime that takes over uh, Wuhan wants to to um, to destroy a local temple because they want to build a road. And at the time, the, the temple is dedicated to this figure, the Dragon King, uh, and dragons are intimately associated within local popular, uh, popular religion with water. Right? So dragons live in um, uh, rivers and lakes and various bodies of water, and they can, they're kind of halfway between a kind of natural animal and a... Uh, uh, some sort of deity and there's got a long history of writing about dragons as not from uh, ancient times to the present day uh, uh, but they can also in some variations shift between being human beings and being dragons or sh snakes and dragons and all these types of things so semi-mythic semi kind of uh, animalistic figure but critically associated with water uh, and they fly up into the 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 skies and shoot rain clouds out of their mouths and can cause all sorts of storms. And of course, to the Guomindang, to some members of the Guomindang regime, this is all just a load of superstitious rubbish, right? During, we're during the, the era of kind of great persecution of what people described as this new category of superstition. And so mm -hmm. they, they, they want to get rid of these beliefs. They also want to build a road. They don't think twice about knocking down this temple. But what occurs one year later, they have the worst, one of the worst floods in the city's history. So fairly understandably, many members of the local population draw a causal link between the destruction of a temple designed to regulate flooding and a massive flood that happens the next year. And so before long, you've got all these people coming down 
to the riverside and they're kind of praying to the dragon king, asking him for protection. And their story begins to circulate around the world. It's uh, there's a guy Xietian Mao who is kind of critical to my book. He wrote this big diary that it's kind of the basis of a lot of the stuff in Wuhan. But also foreign journalists writing about this, and in Singapore and London, everybody's reading about these beliefs of these people, and it becomes a kind of a, a way to ridicule the people of Wuhan, really. But then, when you get down into what's really happening on the streets, you can see that there is uh, what's happening have distinct political factions. So it, you have all these kind of secularist journalists who are kind of decrying uh, the Dragon King cult as this kind of impediment uh, to the way that. The, the, the modern state should be responding to a disaster. But then you also have all of these, all of these kind of figures, people like Xia Douyin, the, the leader of the, the local garrison, who are kind of egging on and in some cases leading these processions. But they're also trying to politically manipulate the situation. They've also got something to gain from portraying this and, uh, as a kind of an act of vengeance by a deity. So, I mean, really, the more you read into it, the more complex it and political it becomes and I guess the take home from this chapter that I would have for people is, is, yes, there's a great deal to be learned by thinking about the way that hegemonic modernity, as Prasenjit Dwar has described it, kind of imposed its own beliefs upon religious structures in China. And there's been some great scholarship about, about that in the Republican era. But at the same time, mm. we have to not be too credulous and actually think that the people doing these things actually necessarily believed in what they were doing. And, and to a certain extent, the secularist critique that this is all kind of a great um, way of deluding the people, in some instances, uh, I would argue, is actually fairly accurate. Right. And I mean, it's, a, it's, it's some ways secularist, secularist critique all the way down. If, if much of the source material that you know, people would have learned about this from in, in, you know, in the form of newspaper reports going all over the world and indeed, I guess, a lot of officially sanctioned uh, documentation that came out under the Guomindang's supervision would also be couched in this uh, sort of, um, I guess, suspicious term as regarded uh, superstition, as you put it, and 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 things that seem to be holdovers from kind of pre-modern age. Um, but a- as you do, it, it's only by delving down to, to ground level, and, and indeed you you go as far uh, at times. I felt almost to embody the well, no, that's not fair, but to uh, take the position of the Dragon King and and actually to speak of the Dragon King as a uh, a, 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 as a, a being, an agentive force within the city, which I think gave uh, that sort of sense of localism and, and, and a rich, I guess, yeah, cultural um, layering, a, a lot of a lot of depth. Um, even more local, perhaps, and even more kind of in the the world of Wuhan, experiencing the flood, is your sensory history uh, in, in in chapter four. You've mentioned already that this was perhaps something that came from your anthropological training, and and, and it comes through, I think, really well. So. Um, what was it that kind of uh, opened the door for you to this sort of sensory approach to the history of the flood? And what were the sights, sounds and smells of the flood as it was experienced by uh, residents of the city? I mean, it's a couple of things, really. Um, partly, I kind of tried to adopt a position when I was writing this. It's funny that you said that in that comment that you felt that I was almost embodying the dragon. I spent a long time trying to do that. I realised at, <laughs> realize at one stage, the only way I can write this is to... At very at the very least, suspend my disbelief or uh, inhabit a world in which a dragon can actually exist and depart from that as a subject position. In this, in the same way, I mean, you might think about this as kind of 
uh, I try to kind of adopt this kind of method history writing approach. A lot of this sensory stuff came from actually being in Wuhan. And I was in Wuhan the same month uh, one time that I was writing about. It was in August. And as you all know, in August in Wuhan, it is horrendously hot. It's, mm. um, I'll talk about a little bit more about that later on when I talk about my next project. So it made me think, well, if I'm horrendously hot, what must it have been like for all those refugees who are just living without any of the kind of mod, mod cons that I've got to alleviate heat? So that was kind of one spur to thinking about this. The other one was the fact that witness accounts of the flood, particularly in Wuhan, are so rich in terms of the details that they provide about the sensory and emotional experience. Yet when you get to reading about the flood in government documents or um, other other documents, um, kind of official documents, all of these, as I say in the book, all of the adjectives have been purged. There's, there's all of this kind of rich, rich description has been missing. So I wanted to, in a sense, to kind of recapture those. But I also think there's something critical, critical to be gained for thinking about this in terms of this kind of holistic disaster regime. Because unless you can begin to understand how people are experiencing something, and of course, we can never totally understand, we can only get an impressionistic um, idea. But unless we can have a degree of empathy, we can't hope to understand why people behave the way they do during disaster. And behavior is a critical aspect of the disaster regime. So I trawled through all these accounts, both the kind of this part of this being a big city full of both Chinese and foreign journalists. There's loads of accounts looking at all of the kind of commonalities. And for example, we can see many of the accounts focus on these kind of grisly images that people kind of confronted with the dead bodies floating. Others are descriptions of how bizarre it is, for familiar landmarks just covered in water. The, the, the landscape has been subverted. Yet more are kind of discussions about how you can't see anything. So the ele- electricity is gone in the city. So half, half the time it's completely pitch black and you're living in this terrifying environment in, in the dark. Or you mm. can't physically see because the water is obscuring you. And then the auditory environment becomes incredibly important. You have all these accounts of people talking about, or oh, I could just hear people moaning from here or dogs howling. But undoubtedly, the most often described sensory experience that you have during the flood is the horrendous smell. So people are talking about it stank. And this is a kind of, doesn't matter who, so there's some refugee accounts, there are kind of foreign accounts there are chinese journalistic accounts they all focus on this stench which to a certain extent you might think would you can suggest this is some sort of leveling right so everybody no matter who you are you can't escape the stink of death and shit basically uh, wherever you are but actually there's a critical difference as i as i mentioned in the book between smelling this and having to actually get into the flood water and tackle the problems of dealing with this and actually, the more you look into it, the more there are critical distinctions of class and, and the different kind of cultures living in the city uh, in terms of like coding the different sensory experiences that they have. Right. And that, I guess, uh, provides a really interesting angle on uh, the sense that, uh, I guess, as we're getting today, in fact, that there are uh, winners and losers. And it's not that, you know, the, the, the myth of the great leveling uh, influence is actually um well, it's exactly that, a myth in, in many, many cases. Um, so th- th- there were sort of winners and losers uh, from these events, or at least people who were able to kind of maintain a semblance of, well, quote-unquote, normal life, uh, to, to use a much-used phrase. Um, 
what what were the what were some of these distinctions that uh, that I guess are so um, yeah curiously approached by the medium of, uh, of of smell and other senses? Well, I mean, uh, so one of the kind of the the most uh, obvious examples of this is the foreign population. I don't I don't want to harp on the foreign population like it was all the foreign population living in the splendor whilst everybody else lived in squalor because there were plenty of uh, members of the Chinese elite who were, who were similarly privileged to the, the foreigners who were in the city. It's just it's particularly obvious because you can tell from the accounts because they're distinguished also by their their ethnicity. So the one of the kind of most obvious sites is at the the foreign race club in in Wuhan, where you in Hankou, where you have all of these foreigners end up going out to the race club, even though of course you can't race your horses. Um, because the, the the pitch is all flooded, and they just there's these descriptions of them just drinking whiskey, complaining that they haven't got any ice for their whiskey because uh, the ice factory has closed down. Mm. Where like meters away in the stable where they ordinarily would have the horses, but the foreign population have already evacuated their very expensive horses to um, to Shanghai. Uh, you have large numbers of refugees living with barely any food and water in the stables that. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned in the book, it's kind of separated from the clubhouse by very little physical distance, but there's a vast chasm between the experience of the disaster in, in these two in these two spaces. Mm, mm. And I, I mean, the the kind of last two chapters, I think, uh, start to approach, uh, I guess, um, or well, not start to because it's there earlier too. But I mean, definitely delve into a lot more depth as regards the experiences of, of the refugees and, and those who were um you know i guess in many cases like this difficult to approach given the the, the prevalence of records penned by people uh, who, who were better off and more privileged um but but who were kind of the overwhelming majority of people affected by these events um so what kind of uh, measures were taken by these uh, kind of the, by the national nationalist government and other kind of local um i guess philanthropic agencies and how how were those responded to by people who'd been thrown into uh, you know destitution by these uh, flood events so yeah the last the last two chapters um are kind of try to develop these two these two types of expertise and and contrast what i describe as this kind of technical expertise uh, against the kind of vernacular expertise of ordinary people so in the first in the first of these two chapters i'm um, describing the development of this National Flood Relief Commission, uh, which is um, staffed by an international group of people involving uh, Guomindang, uh politicians, League of Nations figures, figures from the kind of uh, John Hope Simpson, who's kind of an ex-British imperial guy, is one of the major people who are in charge. It's very international. Uh, very eclectic in some respects, but also very narrow in its view of of how you you tackle some of these these uh, crises. Uh, and so, what what it develops is this kind of insular institutional idea dominated by some familiar ideas. People who've read idea, uh, books by Janet Chun or, or Lillian Lee, or these people who've spoken about the way that that ideas of pauperization. Uh, come to be so so prevalent in the idea in the response to famine. Well, it's dominated by that the idea that we have to prevent at all costs uh, impoverished people from becoming too comfortable uh, with the charity that we're giving them. Giving them it's a familiar idea from 
the Victorian workhouse to the, the colonial administration of India. It's found throughout the world um, mm. during this period. So uh, they, they have this kind of technical expertise that they're dealing with. Uh, in practical terms, they don't often get to apply it because they have to actually deal with this with the, the hand they're dealt. And they come to rely on this massive loan of wheat from America, uh, which is uh, depicted at the time as this, this grand charitable de- uh, gesture from the, uh, the Americans. But it's actually just a means of dumping this huge amount of agricultural surplus that the Americans don't want on a foreign market and dictating the terms of, of loan repayment. So anyway, this is the kind of official response. Um, everybody, I would say, there's nobody who's kind of like deliberately trying to kill people. These people genuinely are doing their best to try and improve people's lives, but they're often hampered by a kind of uh, institutional thinking that doesn't allow them to necessarily accommodate uh, other ways of thinking about dealing with disasters, particularly some of the more um, effective existing uh, indigenous forms of relief that, that already are already there. So that's the, the first of these two chapters. In the second chapter, I look again, I, uh, again, we go to Wuhan and I'm looking at the, um, the kind of refugee response. And in, in many ways, what refugees are doing are precisely the types of things that all the kind of official relief bodies don't want them to do. They're doing things like begging. Uh, they are kind of some of them, some people are engaging in prostitution, all sorts of all sorts of things. Many of them are kind of renting out water taxis, but they're actually quite effective respo- responses to the disaster based on these kind of customary techniques that they have to survive. People in this region mm-hmm. know how to survive a disaster, unfortunately, because they've experienced so many of them before. But gradually, the local state in particular, the police force and the, the aforementioned Shadoyin and the local military begin to clamp down on all of these things because they firstly because they see them as social problems and secondly because um, they are terribly afraid of the communists who they think will use the flood as a pretext to come back into Wuhan where they had been based uh, just a few years previously uh, prior to 1927 so um, this kind of the the local military and the police force enact martial law and begin to force refugees into camps. Refugees, contrary to the way they're popularly portrayed in kind of official relief literature, many of them actually don't want to go into relief camps and receive free food because they don't really want to surrender their autonomy and they don't really trust the state. Um, But they're kind of eventually forced at gunpoint into these refugee camps where many of them end up because these refugee camps are built too quickly and they're not ready to accommodate them, the level of communicable diseases that are in these camps is incredibly high. So I guess the final ingredient of the disaster regime that I discuss within that chapter is the way that kind of an oppressive political regime and the context of warfare acts to exacerbate uh, the consequences of a humanitarian catastrophe. Right, right. And and, and I think uh, that sort of brings out nicely a point I made or pointed I wanted to draw attention to right at the start, which is just what an incredible concatenation of uh, different, uh, absolutely pivotal developments in in China's twentieth uh, century history. This this flood represents and kind of brings into focus. Um, and I think uh, the, the the negotiations of uh, ordinary residents of Wuhan 
with uh, uh, what you referenced earlier as this hegemonic modernity um, is uh, is another kind of absolutely um, uh, well fascinating and engaging part of of the book as a whole. And I I ought to mention just just in passing that the Japanese also invade Manchuria halfway through the flood as well. So it's another something that's mentioned in the book, the book that I haven't had time or haven't uh, managed to bring up yet, but some people might be interested. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the kind of uh, onrushing um, kind of tide of events, <laughs> if you will, and the, and the, this uh, really cataclysmic uh, occurrence in, in, in China's contemporary, I guess, uh, identity and national narrative may also have contributed to the obscuring of, of the events that occurred immediately before that, because suddenly events in Manchuria, yeah, rather take center stage. Um, but um, in the uh, yeah the epilogue, uh, as I was just going to mention of the book, you kind of bring uh, things a little closer to the present in some ways, or offer some reflections on more recent developments, including uh, things like the building of the Three Gorges Dam, which is a little little way up the river, uh, up the Yangtze from uh, Wuhan, um, and I guess yeah elaborate a little more on the on this disaster regime idea or, or bring things uh, into kind of summation there um i just wanted to ask i guess in reference to that what you might say about the disaster regime as a, as a kind of lens through which to look at what what's going on today if that's not too unfair a question you know in a, in, a, in a sort of pandemic era yeah i mean yeah i haven't given this a, hu- a huge amount of thought, although I have, of course, like everybody else, been thinking a lot about the pandemic. Um, I guess two things spring to mind, particularly about where we draw the line about what counts as causality. Right. So um, in, in terms of we don't as yet know what exactly happened in terms of the transmission of, of this particular disease. If it was, as many theories suggest, started in the Huanan seafood market, then do we focus in on the particular moment of transmission, which may have happened in that market, may have happened any time along the supply chain uh, of these exotic animals, uh, which included things like bats and pangolins, which apparently weren't on sale at this particular market. So where do we think about the kind of the cause? Why are we so focused on one moment of zoonotic transmission as the cause of a pandemic? Also, I mean, one of the ideas that I mentioned in the in the book uh, that I've taken from disaster studies more generally is the fact that causality doesn't stop at the moment a disaster happens, right? So we have all these various things like cascading disasters, compounding disasters. So not only do we have to take the causality back before the point of zoonotic transmission, which is in no way to exonerate people involved in the hugely destructive wildlife trade, uh, which I think definitely needs to be uh, banned in, in response to this pandemic. But also we need to take causality forward. We need to think about causality not as something that stops at the moment of zoonotic transmission, but something that's built into the system. And of course, the 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 underlying structures that allow pandemics to spread throughout the world uh, are also structures that we depend upon for the particular economy that we have at the moment and the particular institutional political responses we have in, in each of the different countries needs to be examined as also individual causal factors alongside this or- original moment of zoonotic transmission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think uh, we do well in that case to adopt this sort of multi-perspectival and um, almost a multidisciplinary approach to the uh, cultural, political, social, institutional and so on dimensions of what we're experiencing at the moment. It might 
help us cut through the um, uh, vast volume of uh, of paranoia and nonsense. And uh, I mean, not that paranoia is necessarily wrong. It's obviously all very bad. But uh, in any case, I hope might provide a more constructive way of, of thinking about uh, what is a very difficult and confusing set of uh, events. Um, but Chris, um, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Um, before we let you go, uh, I'll just ask you, uh, our final New Books Network question, which is, uh, what is it you've got uh, on in the pipeline at the moment? You've already hinted at something, but uh, could you give us a bit more of a sense of what it is? So, yeah, I'm kind of, at the moment, trying to write a second monograph also about Wuhan. I mean, I was slightly concerned that having two books about Wuhan would be um, would make me seem l- limited, but I'm figuring now that Wuhan is a more important topic. <laughs> um, so it may be more explicitly. So my, my second book is tentatively, tentatively entitled a century in the furnace, living with heat in urban China, 1920 to 2020. So I'm looking at the Wuhan being one of the three oven cities of China. I'm looking at how ordinary people have coped with living in, with extreme temperatures between this particular period. Um, and the kind of the ambition of this is to really think about the, de- the development of what's known as the urban heat island effect, how actually uh, people have experienced cities actually physically getting hotter as the effect of things like too much use of concrete, the destruction of um, uh, kind of well, uh, uh, green spaces and also the overuse of air conditioning have actually heated up cities. Um, but I'm also using heat as a kind of prism for looking at broader social political changes in China in the 20th century. This project as many of my projects do, started with me talking to old people in Wuhan and then telling me mm-hmm. about how in the kind of 1960s and 70s, everybody used to sleep outside on the street together. We were all hot, but we were all hot together. I don't think there's a kind of better metaphor for the collective era. We were all poor, but we were all collectively poor. Um, and the kind of the forms of nostalgia and remembrance that people have of that particular era and the inexorable rise of air conditioning, the privatization of space, all of these kind of features. Well, that sounds absolutely yeah fascinating. And uh, together with the book we've studied today, definitely, I think, a solid base for a, yeah an entire strand, perhaps, of, um, uh, well, a, a Western Wuhanology or a, a Wuhanshire or some <laughs> kind of a separate discipline, perhaps. Well, there's, there's an, there is an Institute of Wuhan Studies at the, uh, the Jianghan University, sir. Well, there you go. <laughs> then you, you could be the, the the branch founder of the uh, uh, I don't know uh, Northern England or, or maybe Britain uh, branch of, of of this uh, this area of this field, this burgeoning field. Um, but yes, Chris, thank you so much again for appearing on the show today. It was uh, really great to have you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed talking. And listeners, thank you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.